Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem. And I've usually introduced this as the podcast where I talk to interesting people about books that they find interesting. It's still that. But as I announced last month, I'm doing something new this year where each month I talk to one interesting person and we swap a book that we've each found interesting and discuss both books. So that's what I'm doing today, and my guest is going to be Christine Hennebury. I'll tell you all about her in a moment. So the book swap concept, as regular listeners know, is something that I started way back in pandemic lockdown times with my daughter, Emma Cole. We began doing podcasts when I couldn't get outside guests to come in, uh, and we really enjoyed recommending a book to each other uh, and then recording a podcast talking about both books and some of the commonalities sometimes between them or interesting questions that both of them raise. We really love doing that. Emma and I are going to continue doing that from time to time, but this year I decided I love the book swap idea so much that I wanted to open it up to other guests to swap a book with me and uh, and talk about it. So Christine was one of the first people I approached and she said right away, oh, here's the book I'd like for you to read. And I said, well, interestingly, you already told me that more than a year ago and I read the book and I had thoughts on it. And I said, here's one I'd like to swap in return. And she said, you also recommended that to me and I've read it. So we're going to be talking about two books that we had already recommended to each other and read without discussing them um, more than a year ago. So some of our memories on on some of the plot details might be a little bit hazy, but uh, we both, I think, have a lot of strong opinions about both these books, and it's going to be really interesting to talk about them, to discuss them. The two books are The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, uh, the first book in uh, her Daivabad trilogy, and the other book is A Wizard's Guide. Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher. That's a standalone. Uh, City of Brass is the first of a trilogy. They're both fantasy novels. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a great time discussing them. Christine Hennebury is a writer, a storyteller, a creator of uh, bespoke mystery evening events, and just so many more things. She is the founder of AMP, the Association for Arts in Mount Pearl, and a very active citizen of the city of Mount Pearl and of the arts community, both there and in uh, in the wider world, and is really a force to be reckoned with, as well as one of my dearest friends. It's great to be able to talk to her about these two books, and it's great to have you here to join in and listen to our conversation. So, Christine, we're going to talk about The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking and The City of Brass. Uh Uh-huh. And Wizard's Guide was the book that you recommended to me some time ago. So I think to start off, I would like you to talk about kind of what your experience of reading that book was and why it was a book you wanted to recommend to people. Okay, well... um For starters, I just love everything that Ursula Vernon writes. Well, I haven't read all of her horror because she's she's so good at it that it I I can't shake it out of my head. Uh, So I've read everything that I've read by her. I have adored. Uh, I feel like we could be friends. Um, (laughs) And uh, she has so uh, Ursula Vernon writes as T. Kingfisher. Right. So that's that's the name on on Wizard's Guide, right? Yes. And so I. uh, when I read The Wizard's Guide to De- uh, to Defensive Baking, I just, I really resonated with it. It was the kind of thing that I wished that I had written. And I really liked how the main character was only 14, but I could still sort of identify, I was able to go back to sort of being that age where you know things, you're, there are things you're not sure how much you know about, and you're starting to realize that maybe adults aren't always doing the job they're supposed to be doing. Yes. And yeah. I I really, really enjoyed that and how she went through that. And I liked how she 
layered in the different types of problems that Mona faces throughout mm-hmm. the book. And so, I, I don't know, I just really wanted other people to read it because it was such a fun read for me. And but it wasn't a throwaway read. It right. was something that sort of stuck with me. And so I've uh, I've asked all kinds of people to read it. <laughs> Including me, as Including it turned you. out. Yes. So if you were to give like a, a capsule plot summary, like a, a sentence or two of what that book is about, your version. A young magic user, Mona, who has a very uncomplicated and simple type of magic, uh, feels that she'll never really use the magic. She's just going on trying to have an ordinary life. Uh, she realizes that even the most ordinary skills can be very helpful in a time of crisis, I mm-hmm. guess, would be the shortest version. So there's, uh, there would be a longer version, which involves that there are forces attacking and, um, and people are being discriminated against as a whole thing. Yeah. But I don't want to get into a, a mm-hmm. huge description, but she's a, she's a baker who can use her minor magic to... Uh, make her dough rise or she can she can animate gingerbread man that sort of thing very low-key magic um and after she's accused of a murder she uh she sort of gets involved in some political intrigue and uh discovers that using this this very minor magic that she has can actually um you know be combined with other people's help and and help save the community she lives in from the attackers i guess i think that's a great recap okay. excellent work. good okay excellent. good i just had to get to there first <laughs> yeah you, you did a great job getting to it so i would do the same for the city of brass by s.a chakraborty and say that this is a fantasy novel it is the first of a trilogy uh which in itself is a little bit i mean it's hard to recommend the first of a trilogy to people because you're basically saying if you want to finish this story you have to read three really really long books and it is a very long book it is uh, again about a young woman. It's a fantasy, but it's one of those fantasies that starts out in the real world in sort of, I think, 18th or early 19th century Cairo. And uh, Nari is a young woman who's kind of living on the streets and living by her wits, but she has these powers that she doesn't fully understand. Sometimes things happen um, and she doesn't understand why they happen or why she can do certain things. Uh, And she... uh, through a series of unfortunate events, discovers that she is, in fact, not human. She is a djinn and that the entire world of the djinn is like a almost like a hidden world, you know, behind or around the human world. And she gets taken to Daivabad, which is the secret djinn city, and discovers that she is uh, not only a djinn, she is basically descended from a powerful royal family, and she gets thrown into the middle of a lot of political intrigue. Uh, So on the path to discovering who she is and why she is able to do certain things, uh, she discovers that she's part of a much, much bigger conflict. That, that summarizes it nicely, I think. Again, Excellent job. Having to leave out an awful lot of stuff. Oh, my goodness, yeah, yes. For, for, yeah. A, for a quick overview. I read The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking. Um, and I think books are, uh, for me, they're often very, very affected by when and where and what's going on in my life when I'm reading them. Oh, absolutely. Same and, here. Yeah. And I read The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking almost a year ago while I had COVID. And so for me, 
I enjoyed the experience of reading the book, but it feels slightly clouded by the fact that I was um, quite sick and also sleeping in the wrong bedroom because uh, yes, my husband got COVID first and we made a futile attempt to, uh, to isolate into two separate bedrooms. And because he was sick, I let him have the comfortable one. Uh, and then we were both so sick, we were afraid we'd keep, when one would sleep, we'd wake the other one up coughing. So uh -huh. we kept it, but I kept the less comfortable bedroom. So I have these very vivid memories of being, reading that book while sort of coughing and blowing my nose and sleeping in what I thought of as the inferior bed. So I feel like maybe I was not in the best headspace for it, but I still enjoyed the book. Yes, I, I completely understand that. I yeah. have that same thing with books and, and movies and stuff that if I see them at the wrong time, I just can't take them into my personal context really matters for yeah. how much, not only how much I enjoy a book, but how much I remember about it. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a, the, the Wizard's Guide was a good book for me, uh, but it was also one that, that is very closely linked to, to uh, what I was, what I was experiencing while I was reading it. But I did really enjoy it. I loved, I think the things that's the thing that stands out for me uh, because I read a fair bit of fantasy, like I wouldn't say I read a huge amount of fantasy, um, but I'm I'm a pretty big reader of fantasy, and I'm always interested in how the author sort of creates the magic system of that world and and makes it you know interesting. Mm -hmm. And I thought uh, this was fabulous because the whole uh, all the descriptions of Mona's bread related and baking related <laughs> magic. You know this idea that this is a world where magic is real and there are wizards and everybody knows this, but most of the wizards have very minor skills that are just things they can use in their daily work. Yes, yes. The uh, the wizard who lives in the castle who can boil water for tea. Yes. I mean, that would be an excellent magic as far as I'm concerned. Yes, yeah, very useful skill. And so she can do things like, you know, make bread and rolls rise better and that sort of thing. And I think the, the it was interesting to see then how that turned into, well, how are you going to use that in an actual situation where your city is being attacked and you're called on to help save it? That yes. doesn't seem like something that would immediately be useful. Yes, yes. It, and it was interesting how the author built you up to that. Like, like she's starting out, Mona's starting out with just, you know, being able to make sure things rise. And well, she does have Bob the sourdough starter in the Which basement. Is, oh my gosh, that's such a great element of that book, Bob yes, the, the, yes. the endlessly bubbling sourdough yes, starter. Yes, and I've uh, I've seen some references to people referring to Bob as her familiar, which I really feel is uh, like a poor representation of what Bob is. For for the listeners who don't know, Bob is a sour, a sentient, semi sentient, and quite angry um, uh, sourdough starter that she that she started. And I guess I can't remember the details. I think she was upset or angry yes, or whatever. Yeah, I think she, she poured some negative energy into him. Yeah. yeah. And, and then so he basically lurks in the basement and her uncle who she lives with her aunt and her uncle they're afraid, he's afraid, her uncle is to go down into the basement because Bob is down there and there's some suspicion that Bob ate some rats last yes, year yeah, and, yeah. and anyhow so then she then she ends up using Bob as a weapon at different points. So she's moving through these various levels and then when she's on the run at one point she animates a whole little bread circus yes, and yeah. you know she gets her, I like how she gets her additional magic information bit by bit and in logical ways in yes. ways that it really it felt natural how her magic developed and how she she didn't have to sit down and study which is another natural way of yes, uh, but yeah. not in a uh, you don't want to do that in a situation where conflict is imminent you yeah. don't want to have to study a lot of books not everybody is is able to sit down and you know 
absorbable inf information from a lot of books, but she could, she pieced together things as yeah. she went and it felt very natural. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, she learns by trial and error, really. Yes, like she yes. tries things and is like, okay, uh, unbaked bread responds better than, than bread that's already been baked and that sort of thing. Yes, so it's, yes. you know, she learns what she can do and how such an unlikely skill can actually be useful in, you know, in a real world, well, real, real to her world situation. Yes. Yeah. And I think that another thing that I liked about this is this is a type of thinking that I really enjoy doing, mapping the skills from one area onto something else. Yeah. And so I think that I, maybe the book just made me feel clever, but I'm just like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that is yeah, something, I I, if I had a sentient sourdough, I would, I'm sure I could figure out how to use that as a weapon if I needed to, yes. you know, because I like to, I like to transfer skills from one area to another. Mm -hmm. And so. I loved, and just as a detail, like, Anybody who's ever had a sourdough starter, <laughs> I found that that a real great uh, example of taking something very everyday and, and, and mapping it onto a fantasy world because sourdough starters really can get out of hand, you know, and you can almost, I can, I can remember there was this phase in the 80s when everyone I knew was uh, sharing this Amish friendship bread, I think it was called, which uh. was basically giving people sourdough starter. And then you were supposed to let it multiply and give so much to each of your friends. And like any pyramid scheme, except this one didn't involve money, it can quickly get out of hand. And I have a vivid memory of leaving it on my counter in the apartment I lived in at the time, coming home after work and finding that it had just overflowed its little container and was all over the counter. Oh my so. good lord. That's I've never made a sourdough starter. And yeah. I'm not a big fan of sourdough bread. Sorry, sorry team. Um, but uh, I have, I've had that happen with uh, frozen Towton dough that I had bought and put in the fridge and when I opened it up it had engulfed many things. Yeah. Yes, my fridge. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So the idea of a of a sourdough starter that can yeah that can can become sentient and and take on a life of its own was just a great detail in this yes, novel. Really, yes. really loved it. Um, the reason I thought of City of Brass, even though in some ways they're very different books, they are both fantasy. Uh, the reason I thought of it as a good pairing for uh, Wizard's Guide is because they both play on that same trope of young person, in this case, young woman, uh, who thinks of herself as very ordinary, but in fact discovers she is extraordinary and mm -hmm. has, has extraordinary powers um, and has to use them, of course. And I think that is such a huge trope in fantasy novels mm -hmm. that it's interesting to explore how it uh, how it kind of works in, in the worlds of, of both of these books. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your experience with City of Brass? Um, I have a bit of a complicated experience with it. Mm -hmm. I both I I both really liked it and admired what the author was doing, but I also got very overwhelmed by it mm -hmm. because uh, well I have ADHD mm -hmm. and um, there were an awful lot of details with similarly shaped words. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, that I then had to keep going back to check who I was talking about or who who I was reading about rather or who I was considering here, and so I. I guess in retrospect, I maybe should have made a few notes as I was reading, um, but I, I I really enjoyed sort of the flow of the story, but I didn't hold on to the details in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, part of that just might be the um, the unfamiliar setting, and that was my fear actually yeah. as I was going. Is this just because I don't know a lot about these things about this this sort of setting? I don't know a lot about this context. I these words are unfamiliar to me. Is that why I'm not holding on to them? Mm -hmm. um, 
So, uh, but as a, you know, young woman developing her, discovering and developing her powers, just on that front, I, um, I did think that was interesting, but I got very, very annoyed by, um, by her guide, like Dara, Dara yeah. uh, who, you know, I just, I hate that trope of angry guide who has to has to be mean to you and expects you to know things you couldn't possibly know yeah um and i think i mean that could i mean it can be irritating all on itself but i think it might be personal because i often feel like i'm expected to have information that i don't have and i mm, think yeah. that's the uh that's the whole adhd <laughs> thing again that you know that other people have pulled something or gotten something from a from a situation that i have not necessarily picked up on mm. and so when I read that, I think it kind of like stirs up something personal for me. Yeah. So I did, but I do find it, it is common and it's frustrating that someone who already knows ha is not giving someone else the information that could make life easier. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I did, um, I was interested in the process of how she found out more and how, I mean, if she, in some cases, if she just asked questions, she could have made her life easier yeah. or if she hadn't like immediately put up the barrier. But her barrier and lack of questions made sense because in her previous context, she would have been in danger. Yes. Yeah. And in some of the earlier contexts, when she just asked Dara about something, he just didn't answer. Yeah. So uh, you do get if you don't get if people don't answer your questions, you get frustrated and you stop asking. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that it, it made sense, even as I also didn't like it, mm -hmm. that, that aspect of it. I think if you have that trope of young person who suddenly discovers that they have powers of some kind or, you know, or you're the chosen one or what. I mean, you know, I think everybody in the current world, regardless of what you think of J.K. Rowling, thinks of um, Harry Potter for that. But in fact, it was a trope in fantasy long, oh, yes. long before Harry Potter. Um, I think of it, I think, for, for, in terms of another author who turned out to be an awful person, uh, David Eddings, the Belgariad, is, a, is another example of like, you know, young farm boy turns out to discover he's a prince or whatever and, mm -hmm. and that that works out over i don't know five or seven books or something so it is a really common fantasy trope uh and of course you know fantasy and sci-fi because you get it you know star wars is basically the yes. exact same trope yeah. uh star wars old and new it seems like if you discover that you are the young person with uh unexpected powers you either get a wise and kindly guide or you get an irritating as hell guide, which I think is what what Nari gets in Dara, yes, who, yes. who is who is the Jin who basically quite unwillingly, it seems, you know, takes her under his his wing and and teaches her about being a Jin. And there is also, of course, a tremendous amount of sexual tension between the two of them. Yes, which I also find a bit tired. Like, it that's... is tired. I, like, I was a real sucker for it in this book, and if I step back and look at it, I'm like, I shouldn't be, because Dara is everything, every trope that I find annoying. You know, this sort of brooding thousands-year-old uh, morally complex guy who might be a hero, mm -hmm. but might be a villain and is just pissed at everything. Uh, but I also, I mean, he is a fire spirit, so maybe that's why I also did find him smoking hot. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it is hard to avoid in those yeah. circumstances. He, he is hot both literally and figuratively. Uh, but while at the same time I was buying into the sexual tension between him and Nari, I was also saying I can see how another reader would find this absolutely annoying and off-putting. Well, I tried to find a way to articulate how I felt about that. And I actually found it in someone else's review. And I've watched... Um, a few reviews to review for yes, this conversation. Yes, because it has been a while since we yes. both read both these books. Um, and I, um, 
someone said that the thing, and I don't remember who it is, so I apologize to this reviewer who will probably not hear we'll this. We'll never so listen it's a, to this podcast, it's so it's okay. Um, I don't mean to imply that people aren't listening, but the chances are, you know. <laughs> the odds one, that the person who made this review video will also listen to the podcast yeah, it's pretty you remote. Know, uh, anyhow, uh, what this person said was that what wasn't clear, necessarily clear, is how long it took to go from Cairo to Davabad. Yes. And so that this situation would have been developing. So what felt sudden mm-hmm. um, to maybe to some readers to me, and it didn't exactly feel sudden, but um, I didn't feel like the groundwork had been laid necessarily, uh-huh. um, that there would have been this development over time and but you could you can't put in those chapters because then you've got the same chapter over and over again with a yeah. slight romantic development um so uh it did sort of i surprise is overstating the case but it was just a little bit uh, really where did that come from yeah yeah, yeah yeah um and but at the same time i was also kind of expecting it because of the nature there were like a lot of books that involve young adult protagonists particularly with a wise mentor there yeah. is that element in there yeah and um i don't love that uh that uh young adult authors feel like they have to include that uh, all the time or they don't I guess they don't yeah. all feel that way but the, the majority feel but I also understand that that's maybe what their audience is looking for so mm. I don't know it's it's very complex to write a book and who am I to say <laughs> what belongs in there um, but I did I did find that a bit a bit strange but mm. it didn't uh, take away from the rest of it. and once I just like I got over that bump I was just like okay that's fine that's that's the path we've chosen uh, let's continue and see what's going on from there. So, Well, I want to put a pin in that idea about romance and romance specifically in YA or in, in novels that feature young adult protagonists and come back to it. Uh, but there's something else I want to say first. I, I should back up a little bit, I think, to say how I ended up coming across the book The City of Brass, because I think it's very relevant to both the positives and the negatives of both of our experiences mm-hmm. with it. Um, because I read it at a time when I was very specifically looking for books um, ideally by non-white or non-Anglo writers uh, about different cultures and trying not mm-hmm. to just stay, you know, so fixed in my in my own uh, very specific perspective. And ironically, actually, S.A. Chakraborty is a white writer. She's a white woman who's married to a Muslim man. And so her knowledge of that culture uh, comes through having, I think she's converted to Islam, but it's, you know, it's the knowledge yes. of having learned it as a convert, not having grown up in it. And she's starting now to publish under, under her name, Shannon. Shannon, yeah. Because yeah. she wants to, uh, she wants to ensure. Even though she's always been very clear, she never mm-hmm. pretended to be anything other than a white person married. Yeah. To, uh, but that she wants to make it even more clear. Yeah, and I appreciate that about you know. This, I think so. Yeah, because yeah. I did assume it was written by somebody from yes. a Middle Eastern or, or uh, Arab culture, uh, just because of uh, because of the name and and the subject matter of the book, which is very you know it starts in Cairo. Daivabad is is a magical place but it's also very clearly situated within a middle eastern and a very specifically muslim culture and i feel that fantasy like i'm i am always actively trying to seek out fantasy that is not just some spin-off of a northern european medieval world uh-huh uh because i think for a long time so much of fantasy was kind of mired in that mm-hmm. uh that uh 
it's uh, I like to discover and enjoy and and celebrate writers that are drawing on the mythologies of different cultures other than just European. Uh huh. Um, but it does then create that extra layered problem that you already have with especially with big chunky epic fantasy tomes like this one. You're going to have a lot of characters a lot of unfamiliar names, a lot of magical systems and stuff, and then sort of the political factions within court and whatever. And you've got all that layered on with the fact that these are names that you're not familiar with and Mm -hmm. they're not even cognate to names in in, in your culture. Uh So I think, you know, I, I found that with most of the fantasy novels that I've read that are not based in European culture, Mm -hmm. that there's an element of, there's all the difficulty that you always get with with kind of plunging into a fantasy novel and trying to figure out this world. But then the fact that so many of the artifacts and the words used to describe this world are additionally something something unfamiliar. Uh So when you talk about the difficulty of keeping track of sort of who's who and what's happening in this book, Mm -hmm. I found that as well very much. Oh, good, good, good. That's it's hard. I've always lived with an ADHD brain, Uh so I don't know what is, you know, your average brain problem or my particular variation and neurodiversity problem, you know. I think in this case, it's an average brain problem. I think it's something that everybody complains about with fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, people who don't read much fantasy complain about it more because they haven't picked up that you mm-hmm. know, that specific skill that oh my gosh there's all these unfamiliar names and and details to keep track of but then yeah if you're basing it in a culture other than the one you're familiar with then it does add that that whole extra layer so like there's definitely even looking back on it now like probably two well a year after i read the third book in the trilogy uh but even as i was reading it I would not have been able to tell you all the different factions of jinn within the city of Daivabad mm-hmm. and who's associated with what and what. Like, it's it's very complex. Yes, yes. And I, I find even with books that I've read in the distant past or TV shows that I've watched, or that's mm-hmm. what my, my son can watch, uh, you know, he can see a little segment of a TV show that, you know, in a... Uh, in a collection of clips or something and he's going oh okay that's from the third season when blah 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 blah. and I cannot do that and I can't do that with with books I've read like I have to sort of re-familiarize myself with them and so I this is an even more complex case Mm -hmm. of that that you know with your average book I might remember some but uh, I would have to like sort of go back try to remember when I read it if I can remember when I read it then I can often pull some I had the same problem in university classes. I would do the reading and show up, but it's only when someone else started talking. It was like it was pulling all the webs of the ideas I had had out of my brain. Yeah. But if I had to start, I had to like write down a plan to talk about it. Uh-huh. But anyhow. Um, I think that's one striking difference, too, between these two books, The Wizard's mm-hmm. Guide and City of Brass. Um, although both have relatively, well, you know, a Wizard's Guide has a 14-year-old protagonist. Nari in City of Brass doesn't know how old she is, but she's probably about 20. Yeah. Um, so they're both, both have what I would call young adult protagonists, mm-hmm. but Wizard's Guide is a young adult novel, and I think on that level much simpler in terms of its, its structure and the world building. It's not as complex and layered, and there's not nearly as much to like keep track of or unpick. Uh, yes, yes. And I find that with a lot of Ursula Vernon or King, when she's writing S.T. Kingfisher's books is that she's really getting down to the story mm-hmm. yeah. and um and that's you know that's one way to write and it's a good way yeah. to write it's an enjoyable way to write and some people want to have more layers and that's yeah. another good way to write um and 
I I also kind of like that a lot of Ursula Vernon stories are set in the non-specific past or possibly present in which people live in a different way. You know, she pulls in the elements that she needs to make Mm -hmm. it work, but she hasn't set you in a specific time. time, yeah. Yeah. And I enjoy that about it because I am I'm there for the story yeah, itself. So yeah. I think you know, the, and again, like you say, it is. It's not that one is the right or the wrong way to write. It's what you're looking for. Yes. Um, like if somebody said, you know, I want to get into a fantasy series that is really rich and developed and has fantastic world building and really immerses you in a culture, uh, I would definitely recommend the Day of a Bad Trilogy oh, to for the sure. City of Brass yeah. because it is all of that and it's very complex. And it's very layered, and the characters are very very um they're very morally complex you know the people yes. that you think are the good guys at the beginning are not necessarily by the end of the first book much less by the end of the trilogy are not necessarily going to be the good guys likewise the bad guys and you know it's really one of those books where you do figure out there are no good guys or no bad guys yes yes it's much more like real life that way yes everybody's yeah. just trying to get along with whatever information they have yeah some of them are willing to do more to accomplish that than others yes and- yeah and i think you know in the world of this book like for example in some ways um it layers it it, it um i guess maps onto real world concerns and things and like for example there's a sort of uh, what you think is, oh, these are sort of the religious fundamentalists, the extremist group. Uh, but then at the same time, they're the only ones who are concerned about the rights of the people who are kind of at the bottom of that society. Yes. So, like, are we supposed to be rooting for these people or are we supposed to be against them? Or maybe it's more complicated than that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I, I feel like maybe your last option is the one to go with. There, yeah. it's, it's always more complex, isn't yeah. it? And even though it's not as, you know... Um, I guess, complexly detailed a world. I think you do get some of that moral ambiguity in Wizard's Guide, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, you know, she kind of appeals to the Duchess as, you know, the Duchess is the person in power. She's the one who's going to be able to fix things. Uh, But it's not really that simple. No, no. And there's a lot of talk in uh, the Wizard's Guide about heroes and what makes a hero and how... You know, once someone is labeled, well, there's two there's two things that I, I really enjoy about the whole hero discussion is that heroes aren't necessarily the person who wants to step up. It's the person mm-hmm. who has to step up. Yes. Or, you know, her uncle describes a situation in the past in which, you know, in a military situation, he and his fellow soldiers were not given the resources they needed. And then when they survived the ordeal, then they were given medals because mm-hmm. then no one had to ask why they why they were given a medal or why they were you know why they ended up in that situation in the first spot well these the, they're heroes that's why they survived this difficult thing you didn't discuss how it became difficult yeah, yeah and this this whole notion that once you become a hero then people turn to you mm-hmm. for the same thing and and that you know that's true of heroes and it's also true if you're the type of person who steps forward to help then that then people like oh that's someone who helps so then you get asked to help with everything Mm -hmm. and you know it's like that expression that if you need something done ask a busy person yes well well, why not ask the person who's um you know binging netflix nothing (laughs) wrong with binging netflix but maybe you could pause for 15 minutes make these few phone calls and let the busy person take a nap yes you know exactly yeah um yeah i love the ideas about heroism in in wizard's guide and the idea that 
maybe leader instead of relying on people to step up and be heroes leaders should be working on creating a situation where we don't need so many heroes we don't need people to be i love that idea that Mm -hmm. you know if somebody has to be exceptionally heroic that's a systemic failure actually yes yes indeed indeed and uh it's i really thought that she did layer in a lot of sort of modern concerns in there and the, these sort of ideas of, well, as you said, with the uh, systemic failures and yeah. whatnot, that there's, um, you know, people shouldn't have to bargain for these basics in life yeah. and yeah. that people should be, um, should have the support that they need. Mm-hmm. And all of these things that are just kind of woven in there, are, um, I think, are very good. And she's yeah. uh, she's very sort of politically active on on Twitter yeah. and it's uh it's one of the things I enjoy about her existence you know mm-hmm. it's that she's she's stepping up she's ready to say no that's wrong yeah <laughs> yeah and I do love the way that the political concerns get you know uh woven in there not in a heavy-handed way yeah. but like this whole idea that this is a society where everybody has always known that there were wizards and magic users and suddenly uh there's a move to get rid of the wizards and magic users and the way that you know, people are turned against their neighbors. And uh-huh. that prejudice becomes, you know, oh, well, we've accepted these people, but we've always been a little bit suspicious of them. Mm-hmm. And now when it's suddenly socially acceptable to hate them, some of us are going to do that because yeah. it turns out we've been like that all along. Yes, is- yes, yes. And, you know, everyone's looking for, uh, not everyone, but uh, lots of people think that in order to get ahead, they have to step on someone else. Yes. You know, yeah. to get that little bit higher. And so they're waiting to see who they can step on without repercussions. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's an unfortunate fact of some human's existence that mm-hmm. they're they're waiting for that chance. So. Yeah. I think two things from earlier in the conversation that I want to come back to. Uh, one of them is this idea of mentors, because I said, you know, if you're if you're the young person with powers, you're either going to get the wise and kindly mentor or the kind of asshole jerk mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the wise and kindly mentor, I think, always has to either fail you or withhold something from you. Because yes. for story reasons, clearly, if your mm-hmm. mentor told you everything you needed to know. Yes. Probably. How could you develop a story? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I wonder does Mona in Wizard's Guide, does she get a mentor or does she have to almost mentor herself? She, I think she has to mentor herself because I think she pieces it together by asking questions and, you know, being very sort of self She's She's doing, you said earlier that she learns from magic through trial and error, but mm-hmm. she's getting her mentorship through trial and error as well yes. to see who she can ask for help, who will actually help her, who will give her useful information. Yeah. And so I think that she... She has multiple kindly people that mm-hmm. do that do help her, and she has you know the support of her friend whose name I can't remember. It's Spindle. There Spindle, we go. Yeah. She has the support of Spindle, who but he is also part time grumpy as well, yeah. and can't believe that she doesn't know the basics of life as yeah. he. Uh, and she has he, knackering Molly, who is just, such a great character. Yes, and um, I I really like how you know you were saying that the they have the you know these ordinary sort of magics, right? Mm-hmm. She's got she can make make good bread mm-hmm. a knackering molly um if your horse dies in the street you don't have to pay for you don't have to pay for someone to come and take the horse away instead you are uh, to you know to the knackery there yeah, we go knackery, yeah. instead you can pay molly and molly will reanimate the horse enough to get it to the knackery like just this idea of you know magic just tidying things up a little yeah, bit yeah. you know like she can she can do necromancy but only in this incredibly specific and very practical way yes yes which again turns out to be a a, yeah. a, a power that can be useful in the yes. uh, in the final conflict but she's not a great mentor because she is 
quite unhinged from reality in many ways and not particularly concerned about mentoring anybody. Yes, yeah. yes. But she does. She shows up to support yes, her. Yeah. Uh, she shows up to support Mona, you know, at a couple of crucial times, especially there at the end. Yeah. But she and she she doesn't have a lot of information to provide, but she does provide sort of a practical support. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of like your friend who, when you're in the middle of a family crisis, shows up and cleans your bathroom. Yes. As yeah. opposed to the one who's going to help you navigate the healthcare system. Yes, exactly, you know, like yeah. those are those are two valuable types of support, mm-hmm. but um, they're very different types yeah. of support. And, you know, you can't you can't exchange one for the other. Yeah. The other thing that I said I wanted to put a pin in was the idea of romance because uh, City of Brass has, of course, that that fairly early in the book uh, establishment of sexual tension between Nari and Dara, mm-hmm. uh, who is, you know, for, for all he's like 3,000 years old and a ancient fire spirit, is basically your angry, brooding young man. Yes, yes. Old young man. Um, and then she later develops this friendship, which seems like it could be more with the sort of very gentle, studious Prince Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's really, and of course, that's you've only read the first book of this mm-hmm. trilogy. That's obviously going to play out over the next oh, three yes, books yes. and does. Um, and so in many ways, like a lot of uh, young adult uh, and, and adult fantasy and science fiction stories of these types, it's set up for a love triangle. Mm-hmm. And, it's you know, uh, obviously the classic is Twilight and are you, you know, Team Edward team jacob whatever in this case are you uh are you team dara or team ali which i think is such a a disservice to the story but absolutely we do tend to do that um and what i really like by the time i'm not going to say anything for anybody who might want to read this trilogy i'm not going to say anything about how that or any other aspect of it finally ends up but i did read um an interview or a blog post or something by shannon chakrabarty where she was saying she wasn't aiming for that sort of classic romantic triangle thing, even though it does play out that way at certain points in the book. Uh, she's more looking at you can love different people in different ways at different times in mm-hmm. your life. And somebody might be the passionate, hot, scorching romance that you have. And somebody else might be the person that you have a more stable and steady and long term relationship with. And neither of those is necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I like that. But I also thought it was interesting because when Emma was was a young adult reading young adult books, when she was a teenager, she was always complaining that every book had to have a romance in it. And why can't we just have a story that they, they don't have to pair people up? There don't have to be couples. And I thought Wizard's Guide is a really interesting example of that because there's no hint of anything like that. You yes. Know? And I yeah. don't think it's just because Mona is only 14, because there's lots of books with 14-year-olds uh-huh. where there is a, a romance, but there's no element there. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I agree um, on all of those points, The and including Emma's of why does there always have to be a romance? And I like I understand lots of people love romance novels, uh-huh. and I love, uh, I don't read a lot of romance novels, uh, I'm usually looking for the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyhow, but I uh, but I think romance novels are cool. And uh, if that's the kind of book that you sink into, by all means, sink mm-hmm. into that book. Um, but I don't like when they, when they feel like they've been inserted into mm. into a story or, well, we have to have a romance. And I think it contributes to the... Uh, I'm talking about when... Not in a romance novel. No, You're not inserting yeah, a romance yeah, in, no. in, a, a novel in a novel that's not a romance but has romance in yes, it. Yes, yeah. I want to be clear because I know 
romance novelists and romance readers get a lot of insults, and I am not insulting anybody here. I'm talking, say, if I'm reading an urban fantasy novel, yeah. I don't mind a bit of romance in there, that's grand. But if it, um, if it sort of takes over from the point of the story, or what I consider the point, and maybe the romance is the point of the story, yeah. and I'm reading it wrong. But um, I, I, I get frustrated by the the sort of need to edit, the need to have this, uh, as if there's there's no other sort of important relationships that need to be explored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I really like it when there's friends that don't turn into yes. a romance. You know, and I know that, you know, friends to lovers is a romance trope. It's a trope, trope for a and reason. That's, and, and it's that's, a real life trope for a and reason. And it's a real life trope for a reason. That's great. But I'd also like to see some friends that don't yes. have any I've got lots of friends of, of all genders um who don't uh that you know we, there's no romantic tension yeah. there there would never be um and I like to see that reflect in books when there's like a partnership for the task at hand mm-hmm. like Spindle and Mona yeah. um that this this is not relevant but I did I found it interesting more and to your point that um it's not because Mona's only 14 Mona is looking at she's looking at Ethan is it she's looking at one of the wizards Ethan and the golden general right we, yes yeah, yes yeah. there we go and she's describing him as having hair the color of cinnamon rolls and skin the color of melted butter or maybe the yeah, other way around yeah. I don't remember and then she's like why must I resort to pastries for my description <laughs> and I just yeah. I just really love that because she's clearly having some of these feelings yeah. but they're just not relevant to the task at hand yes exactly and uh, I thought that that was that was deftly handled Romance can be a really important part of a story, mm-hmm. but you can tell a good story without tacking a romance in there to attract whatever group of readers you think that's pulling in. Yes. Because yeah. you're, if you're hitting your real audience, mm-hmm. your true audience who's you know looking for your type of work, tacking on a, tacking on a romance, or if you're writing a romance, tacking on a mystery yeah. is going to put those people off more so than... Yeah, drag them in. Yeah, you know because you won't be able to do it authentically, and I think that's the thing mm-hmm. when a romance is. I mean, um, Chakraborty, it is authentic how yes, that yeah. is developed, and uh, and given the cultural context, mm-hmm. there's lots of discussion at the beginning of the book about how you know she should be married or she should yes, be looking, yeah, and you know normal, the cultural yeah. expectations of that age mm-hmm. would be that there should be a you know a, a partner in her life by this point so it's it's handled quite uh, john yeah. Gordy's not tacking it no. on here but i have seen it in lots of books and was like ah why can't they just be partners yeah, doing the yeah. thing? Yeah, why like, does this feel romance feel shoehorned in here? I, yeah. I, yeah. I've definitely had that experience. I think I've had it more with TV series with, than with books where oh. it's been established that these characters are friends and that's okay. And then, did you watch Warehouse 13? No, not yet. Okay, well, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I will say that is an example of something where I felt a romance element was shoehorned in where it did not need to be just because, oh my gosh, we have to, you know, there has to be sexual tension. It has to be paired off at some point. I, I listened to a Supernatural podcast not about the show Supernatural. Right, it was yeah. a um, podcast about the Supernatural, yes. not okay. the series. There okay. we go. And it was, say, four seasons or five seasons, listening, 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 listening. And in the last episode, one, the, the narrator of the episode suggests to the the guy who mm-hmm. the, he was the expert that they run away together and it was a where did this where come did this from, come this, like, from? Yeah. Like, did i actually looked on my podcast I have to make sure i didn't flip to another <laughs> podcast because you know some 
some people have um, series in which this I'm telling this story, and then I'm telling. It's like, did mm-hmm. I use someone with the same like? The, now she's playing a different character yeah, with the same, yeah. you know, she's using her own voice to play a different character. Uh, but no, it was this. I'm just like, did I miss it? Like, it took me maybe 20 minutes of like scrolling around, trying to check things and looking online to see if I had somehow missed a season or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, no, there was lots of complaints me. online that this is, could they not think how to end this? Yeah. <laughs> and that was... And I think that that's the classic problem when a romance feels not organic and kind of shoehorned yeah. in there, like, oh, we've got to have a romance. Uh, I feel like the romances in, in City of Brass are very organic organic um they did kind of jump at that one point but once that once that like i said once she made that decision yeah then um and i I also thought it was great i I loved with wizard's guide that that it was that she didn't feel the need to shoehorn in Mm -hmm. a romance or create a a romantic tension either between any existing characters or create a whole nother character for mona to fall in love with you know i thought that was great that 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 wasn't done and that kind of lead when you said you know if that's the kind of book you're looking for that leads into my last question um, which is, uh, and I'll, I'll say for my book, but I'll ask you to say for your book, what type of reader would you recommend a wizard? I know you said you love, you love to recommend it to a lot of people. Um, and I think we have done a good job of not giving too many spoilers here. So both books are still open for your reading pleasure. Well, to people who are looking for a quick, enjoyable read and like low key fantasy, this isn't a lot. There's not a lot of, I won't say there's not a lot of world building because she clearly knows all the pieces of her world, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't, you don't need to know a lot of information to follow the story. Yeah. Um, uh, And to people who, uh, my, my sister once described her husband's taste in movies as kid does something amazing. Uh, that was what he really loved when kids (laughs) do something amazing and, you know, save the day. Uh And so, but if you, if you like, unexpected character does mm-hmm. something amazing then this is a uh, then this is a really good, good book one. for you yeah and, and having had it recommended to me I, I would agree with that uh, that profile because I enjoyed it I think for those you know for those reasons um, I would say I would recommend City of Brass highly but I have only recommended it for the most part to people who are pretty seasoned fantasy readers mm-hmm. and especially if I know that they like kind of epic saga fantasy and are prepared to take that deep dive into yeah it's a 500 page book mm-hmm. and so it's about a 1500 page epic that's going to have a lot of story a lot of world building and if you are interested in exploring fantasies set in cultures other than sort of generic medieval northern European and you're prepared to take that deep dive into hey there's going to be a lot of Arabic sounding names in here or uh, a lot of aspects of a culture that maybe you're not familiar with on top of the fantasy world. Uh, If you're up for that and you like a good fantasy adventure with a strong female character and don't mind a bit of romance, then yes, I would highly recommend City of Brass. Now, it's interesting that you say who you would recommend that to because I don't actually read a lot of fantasy and I don't read a lot of heavy world-building books. But I did enjoy this Mm -hmm. for the story, although I did have to sort of um, I had to sort of get past some yeah. of that. Get past is really overstating the case, but I had to like say, okay, I'll gather the details that I need and yeah. go on from there. And I admired the world building. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I would like to add a caveat that it, it's there's a very good story, uh, even if those things might turn you off the mm-hmm. the uh, the epic nature of it. Um, then I think that the uh, uh, that this this would be good for you, even if that uh, even if those aren't your usual sorts of yeah. things. So, 
Thank you so much for discussing these two books that we have book swapped with me. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up about either book? Not really. No, I think I think we've we've covered everything. I enjoyed them both and I'm glad to have been invited to be on your podcast. And uh, so thank you and thank you for introducing me to the City of Brass book. And thank you for introducing me to and that I should say that unlike you, I hadn't read anything else by T. Kingfisher or Ursula Vernon. So uh, that, that it it did intrigue me enough to want to read uh, something else by her. If you were going to recommend something else by this author, what would you recommend? Is there something you would recommend? Oof, where would I even start? <laughs> um, uh, well, she has um, a, a well, I think it's a two book series, maybe three book, um, that's called something like The Clock Tower Wars or Clock Work Wars. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, anyhow, and it is set in a sort of similar world. Oh gosh, just really anything that she's written as T. Kingfisher that's not horror. She yeah. writes horror. but I, there's, I will not be reading horror. Uh, so. Because she's very good at it. Yeah. Um, and she has short stories that she's written as this. Mm -hmm. So I'm I should say, there's not one, not one in particular I mm -hmm. would read, but I did very much enjoy the clock, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> uh, books. And I, uh, yeah, I just really, really enjoy her work and I would recommend it to anyone. If it sounds appealing to you, yes, dive in. Mm -hmm. There we go. And of course, uh, Shannon Chakraborty has written the three books in the Diabeba trilogy, City of Brass... Kingdom of Copper, Empire of Gold. Everything that's, is like like a place and a metal. <laughs> yes, that sounds that yeah. sounds right. And then she wrote, I think it's River of Silver, something of silver, which is a collection of short stories in the world of Daivabad. And this very month, she has a new book out, which is about pirates. And I cannot now remember the title, but I'll I'll look up the titles both of this and of the series you were talking about and make it sound in the extra like I knew what I was talking about. Okay, there's also something about uh, Ursula Vernon's work that. I wanted uh, oh, I yes. wanted to mention in some of her other novels set in this non-specific fantasy world I'm um, very specific to her yeah. not specific yeah. to me she has these creatures called gnolls g n o l e mm -hmm. um and these creatures don't use any pronouns oh and I just find it really interesting how she's done this so if if the knoll in particular who's driving the cart mm -hmm. wants to say something about that knoll, yeah. they say, a knoll thinks we should be stopping now. Right, rather uh, than I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a knoll feels like humans can't smell things well enough. Or, you know, <laughs> a knoll pities a human who can't, this kind of thing. And it's just really interestingly handled without having to default to, uh, you know, inventing another way to do this. Yes. It was, it is, she's handled it really deftly. And it was, it was really... It was just really, really interesting without, because there's so much discussion about gender and how to use pronouns mm -hmm. now. Um, and I want everyone to be able to express themselves in the way that that uh, is truest for them and to have this example of how people can talk without using pronouns at all. Mm. So if there's a, if there's a situation where someone where you're trying to communicate and you don't know someone's pronouns or what if this is a, I mean, you're not yeah. going to call them a no, a human <laughs> things. You're not going to do that, but that there's, there's just ways to be ways. respectful. Lang yeah. And language yeah. is more flexible than we think it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just really enjoyed that about that. And mm -hmm. I often will 
then say to to one of my kids, well, a mom thinks that you should put the milk back in the fridge, but, you know, or talk about yeah. my dog. Well, a pup thinks they should be allowed out the door. And then I just used a pronoun. But yeah. A pup thinks going out through the door is a good yeah. idea. You know, that kind of thing. So I just, it was just an interesting exploration as I far think as I was, And I think that's something that sci-fi and fantasy can do really well. Like, in the current world we live in where... Not all, but certain very conservative people are essentially wetting themselves at the thought of having to rethink how they use pronouns. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting because sci-fi and fantasy writers can create other worlds where maybe we don't use the same pronouns. Or, um, yes. have, have you read uh, Becky any Becky Chambers, first of all? No. Oh, my gosh. High recommendation for Becky Chambers, uh, but particularly for short and easy read. Um you know, to, to dip your toe in and see if you like her writing, uh, the a psalm for the wild built, the first of her monk and robot series, and in that world there are um, there are male and female, and there are non-binary people, and the main character is non-binary, and it's just very much taken for granted, and the way in which. Uh, Dex, the main character, uh, you know, uses pronouns and other people use pronouns to refer to Dex. It's just so matter of fact and, uh-huh. and, and a non-issue in this world uh-huh. uh, that I just thought it was really nice to say, OK, well, we're going to look at this futuristic, lightly sci-fi setting and say, yeah, maybe they could do this and it wouldn't be a big deal. And, and it's, it's one of the things that I think sci-fi and fantasy writers can do really well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I gave a a talk at uh, Sci-Fi and the Rock many years ago, seven or eight years ago now, and I was using examples of various storytelling and, and that kind of stuff in various sci-fi series and fantasy series and whatnot. And basically my conclusion was, we're we're inventing whole new worlds. Why do we have to use the stereotypes that exist in ours? Why yes, not rethink yeah. these things and see... You know, why not tell stories of possibility instead of limiting? If we're moving into a whole new world, why do we need to limit ourselves to things that are possible or currently existing in ours? We can use some of those things, but we can expand beyond them. So why not do that? Exactly. And, and I love when that shows up in very ordinary ways. Yes. In books. If we can imagine a world with sentient sourdough starters, we can also imagine a world where we don't have the gender binary for everyone. <laughs> oh, my heavens. Yes, please. Bring it on. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. That's right. a good point to wrap up on. All right, thank you. That wraps up my book swap conversation with Christine Hennebury discussing The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher and City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. And to go back to some of those book titles that we forgot while we were carried away with our conversation, uh, the T. Kingfisher series that uh, Christine also recommended is the Clock Tower War series. And uh, the new Shannon Chakraborty book that I could not remember the name of, the one that's coming out this month, is The Adventures of Amina al-Sarafi. And I will, as always, put up show notes uh, listing all the books we discussed and sometimes other tangential things that came up. There will be links to everything, so if you heard something but you don't know how to spell the author's name or can't remember it, just go to my website, trudymorgancole.com, click on the Shelf Esteem link, and uh, I think it says either Shelf Esteem or Podcast link, and that will take you to a page that will have show notes for every episode of this podcast. I'm going to be back next month with another uh, book swap that I have lined up with another fantastic guest. If you're really enjoying these and you think, I would love to be a guest on this podcast, I would love to recommend a book to Trudy, have her recommend a book to me and come on and talk about them. The same website, TrudyMortonCole.com. You can find my contact link. Send me a note with a suggested book and maybe we'll be able to work something out. 
Thanks to Christine Hennebury for being such a great guest. Thanks, as always, to my son, Chris Cole, for production work on the show and also for the opening and closing theme music. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. Read a good book. Build your shelf esteem. <laughs>